Hi, I'm Cara DeCreus, and you're listening to The Progression Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Progression Podcast. It's now early December. I'm sitting by our Christmas tree, uh, recording an intro for this fantastic episode. Cara DeFrias started as an instructional designer, um, eventually working her way to user experience design through lots of interesting experiences that we'll hear about. Um, she worked as a director of experience design on the Cancer Moonshot, which we talked about. There. That's with um, Obama and Joe Biden. Uh, she was a senior advisor at 18F, uh, and for us Brits, that's the Americans' equivalent of GDS. So we talked about instructional design, of course. Uh, we talked about Obama, uh, pale males, uh, career progression of a person versus a professional, and where you can use your existing skills in new ways to readjust your career. Uh, we talked about attempting to cure cancer, doing user-centered design in government, being a good sponsor, our mutual love of the West Wing, of course, uh, and much, much more. This interview was actually recorded probably three or four months ago, uh, as many of the ones that are coming up were. Uh, I ran out of time uh, and should have got onto this sooner. But what it's meant is I've listened back to this interview as a listener, having <laughs> very little recollection of what was said, uh, and really, really enjoyed it. So this is a, this is a really fantastic uh, chat. In other news, uh, many more interviews coming up. And as always, if you want to check out Progression, uh, then please do let me know. We're attempting to work through our waitlist as fast as possible, but it's not always super quick. So if you're already on there and you're waiting for a moment to get that email, then jump the gun and email me or send me a tweet or something. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, on with the show. Welcome, Cara, to this episode of the Progression Podcast. Uh, I've been reading a lot about you, but I'm sure there are many people listening who don't necessarily know that much about your work. So it'd be great to hear a little bit about you. Where, what has brought you to this point in time? Yeah. So thank you for having me, first of all, Johnny. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I work at the intersection of technology and humanity. So I'm really favored. Um, I really favor the human side of tech not as much on the coding side. I believe in the power of teams. I believe in the power of people and being inclusive to make sure all people have a seat at the table, especially people who might not normally be there and figure out ways to get their voices heard and amplified. And, you know, my career started out, I started out my first 10 years was an instructional designer. That's what I got my master's in from Penn State. And then I did this kind of dog leg thing where I worked in pro sports and entertainment for a while, um, worked on the Oscars, the Super Bowl, the World Cup. And then I kind of settled into the next phase of my career after I got all that out of my system and have spent the better part of the last decade working in user experience design. And that's taken me to tech companies. That's taken me to the government. I do a lot of nonprofit work with uh, small businesses I dig, usually women owned, have to be LGBT friendly in my pro bono work. And I'm having a great time, you know, getting out of my day job now and again to work with some really rad nonprofits I dig, like Team Rubicon, which is a veterans organization that pairs veterans with natural disasters. And, you know, just things that I'm drawn to things that, you know, make the world a better place. And I try to leave things better than I found them. As should we all be. <laughs> that sounds uh, 
it sounds incredibly varied and I know that your your background has kind of taken you in as you said a lot of different directions I kind of want to start by asking what may be a silly question but what is instructional design Oh, that's great. It's funny. I actually could never answer that question well because my parents always asked me what it was too. And then on my way to uh, graduation from graduate school, my mother-in-law says, so basically you make the tools that companies create to train their employees, to do needs assessments, to see where they need help and kind of like designing the organization. And I said, yeah, that's absolutely right. That's what I do. (laughs) So... Uh, it only took, you know, two years of schooling and a really brilliant ex-mother-in-law to figure that out for me. <laughs> so what's a, a kind of an example of, of a project that you would have worked on there? And, and I'm, I suppose I'm interested in how you've drawn a line from that experience through to what you do now. You know, it's interesting you ask that, Johnny, because a lot of the conversations I'm having now, especially as the UX community has matured and grown, I mean, sure, we see a lot of the same pale males at conferences and on Twitter having the same questions and conversations ad nauseum. But if you go beyond that kind of uh, hallowed um, pedestal, you'll see a lot of people who are coming in with a lot of different experiences. And so as we talk about career progression as UXers, you know, usually started with, you started as a visual designer or a baby researcher, or baby UXer, and then you eventually get to like principal or chief architect or whatever. And what I found in my career is I'm kind of stepping out and saying, what is the career progression of kind of the person as opposed to the domain? And so for me, it was starting instructional design. And it was a lot of things that are very similar to UX. It's needs analysis. What is said is needed versus what is actually needed. I remember when I was at one of the largest insurance companies in the country and actually the largest in New Jersey, we had an example where the head of the department came to me and said, you know what? People are spending too much time on phone calls. We have to get the call times down. We need training. So a lot of instructional design is creating stand-up training or e-learning. So it usually lives in a training and development department, a learning and development department that generally tends to fall under HR, uh, human resources. And so if I had just listened and said, sure, let's create more training. Instead, I went in and did a needs analysis, which in UX we refer to as research, follow me homes, ethnography studies. And I watched people for a week. I watched 10 different people for a week and what they did. And what I saw in doing kind of the task analysis was, huh, they're actually switching back and forth from multiple programs. In fact, they have to switch back and forth between three programs. And so what I came back and I said to leadership, I said, I don't think we need more training. It's not going to make them quicker. I think what we need is to invest in two screens for everybody, because back then everyone only had one screen. So as you can imagine, they immediately went to cost. They immediately said why that's not going to be a good idea. And I said, let me do a pilot for a month with five employees. We will take the baseline baseline data we collected in our study, and we'll compare it against the rest of the group and how quick, how much more quickly they are. And call time dropped by 50% because what we had them do is instead of toggling back and forth between three programs, we had all three windows up on the screen at once across two screens. They rolled it out. It saved the company hundreds of thousands of hours, tens of thousands of dollars over the first month alone. And so, you know, you look at that and you're like, oh, that's instructional design. Now your career's kind of going into UX because at the same company, there was a group called the New Media Group. And I'm doing rock and roll quotes on that for your listeners who can't see me. Um, <laughs> and the New Media Group was doing this newfangled thing called usability. 
And so I remember they were also doing their first e-learning and I said, oh, I used to work in Hollywood and I did a lot of script coverage. So if you think it's helpful, I'm happy to help write your script for your e-learning. They were like, oh my gosh, you magical unicorn. We'd love to talk to you. And, um, and so I said, what else do you do? And they said, oh, we do usability. I said, oh, what's that? And they said, oh, we put stuff in front of people before it gets pushed live so we can figure out what's wrong with it. And I was like, wait, 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 hold up. You get to be the voice of the user and stand up for them in meetings with marketing and engineering and everybody else. And they were like, yeah, I was like, I want a piece of that. So I went to my <laughs> boss and I said, Bill, um, I want to rewrite my job description to be 75% instructional design and 25% new media and usability. And that, so that, that was my first foray into UX. And there's just so many similarities between like needs analysis, task analysis, trying things out before they go live, um, you know, iterating, constantly getting feedback. And, and so to thread that needle from instructional design to user experience design was just such a natural stepping stone for me. And now that I've kind of gotten to the point in my UX career where it's, gosh, I really, I love UX. It's my wheelhouse. It will always be who I am. What's next? That's why when I moved to government, I really found this kind of like chief of staff, senior advisor, biz ops role for me is kind of the next maturation of my skill set and my passions and, you know, moving into that space where now I'm looking at org design again, kind of coming a little full circle to instructional design, but also, you know, being that person in the background that helps scale the leader and the leadership team and being a thought partner and being a confidant, you know, the thing that would never go on a business card is the, somebody was joking with me, they said, oh, you're like a consigliere. Um, I said, actually, <laughs> it's not terribly far off from that. Um, but so it's it's been a really nice career progression. That's why I was saying to bring it back, you know, a lot of times we talk about moving up the ladder in UX and in design. And, and I, I'm starting to encourage people to take that step and go like, what's the, what is the step outside of design where we can bring all of our UX skills to fruition in other places that might not have them yet and make those places better. And again, leave them better when we found them. Yeah. There's like three things I want to talk about now, but I'm going to start with the last <laughs> thing that you said, <laughs> which, um, which really, uh, rang true with me because this assumption that okay well I'm going to start I'm going to choose to be a UX designer or an instructional designer and then I'm going to grow my career within that but that's just this is the first decision I made um, based on a set of criteria that were probably not necessarily representative of the things that I enjoy to do or or at least the correlation isn't 100% Um, so seeing a a career as more an opportunity to try a bunch of stuff until you find the stuff that you like to do and then kind of build your career around things you want to do is so much more, um, I suppose, interesting to me and correct to me than uh, seeing the next step as just the, the more senior title of the thing you're already doing. Some of the most interesting careers that I have seen amongst people that I've talked to have been those people that have recognized have been you know potentially quite high up in companies and recognized that they're just doing a bunch of stuff that they don't like to do and have been comfortable <laughs> i'm not sure right. i'm not sure how much these people have taken a, a you know a, a pay cut but they've definitely taken a sideways and possibly slightly backward step to reframe what they do every day as something that they want to do and you know that right. that's not necessarily what you've done but um but why shouldn't we, you know, why shouldn't we be able to um, be that analytical 
over over the things that we enjoy and be able to reframe ourselves in in new ways rather than feeling that kind of pressure to um to conform and and, and climb that same ladder to continue your analogy basically that was a long way of saying i agree uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but another thing that you said that i thought was quite interesting was um you describing the fact that you found opportunities to do what might be uh, in air quotes UX design as part of being an instructional designer and and the cliche is that you design to your org chart or you you build products according to your org chart and and it sounds very much like it's very easy to slip into that and you managed to cut through those those silos and uh, find a way of bringing in a new set of skills Uh, but is there anything that you've kind of any skills you've taken with you in terms of trying to uh, find ways to cut across department and cut across skill set and get help from outside your team or yeah you know it's interesting i have a natural curiosity for how things work i have a natural curiosity both at the systems level at the team level at the functional level And if I see an opportunity or I I don't understand why something's not happening a certain way, I'll just ask, right? So we had something at work here called Small Business Week that's a national thing in the United States. Uh, The Small Business Administration is kind of the spearhead of the effort every May. And I heard at work, I heard someone say, oh, we're doing this for Small Business Week. And I heard another person from another team say, oh, we're doing this. And I said, wait, wait, how about we all get together in a room and, and coordinate efforts, right? And that's just kind of how I've always operated when I see opportunities for efficiencies, when I see opportunities to connect dots where people might not know the other person's doing something, or if I think that there might be a beneficial relationship for person A to talk to person B, especially among non-majority folks, I always try to extend the hand, make the connection, introduce people because we are better together. I believe that incredibly 1000 million percent. Uh, In fact, I was at Comic-Con last month in San Diego and there was this artist who he kind of had this like post-apocalyptic, but not his name was uh, Daniel Danger. His name is Daniel Danger. And it's not post-apocalyptic in like a, you know, the world's blown up kind of way. It's just more of a like society's kind of getting run down, but he's got these beautiful pieces that incorporate a quote and then incorporate just like this, this tiniest sliver of people. And my undergrad, I double majored in theater and English, and that has served me so well in life from a performance aspect, from a people, you know, adult learning psychology perspective. And there was this beautiful piece he had, Johnny, where it was the, the view we were looking at was from the inside of a theater that had been abandoned. And the back wall where the screen should be had been um, knocked out. And so you could see the trees in the forest behind the building. And there's, you saw the backs of these two little people walking out. And they were little because from the point of view, you're at the back of the theater. And they're walking out into the light, right? Because it's dark in the theater. And the the words that he, the quote that he kind of weaved in to above the proscenium arch uh, says, if we go, we go together. And I just was like, that's it. That's me. Like, that is how I feel about people. That is how I feel about work. That is how I feel about technology. Like, tech is a team sport. This whole world is a team sport. Like, we, we can't go alone. So I, I bought the big the big print and it'll go in my new house, but I have a, a little version of the print that I keep on my desk because it just grounds me that, you know, if we go, we go together. Mm. Maybe this is a good segue into uh, the work that you've done with government and, and especially with 
um, the Obama administration and Joe Biden and, and working working on cancer moonshot and all that kind of stuff. So I'm in the UK and probably slightly less close to some of those uh, some of those things that those um, policies and, and initiatives that have happened. Um, but I've been really interested reading about the cancer moonshot and um, got goosebumps listening to the Obama announcement of of Joe owning it. In fact, maybe we'll play it right now in the uh, in the podcast and people can have a listen as well. You know, we all miss him. So now last year, Vice President Biden said that with a new moonshot, America can cure cancer. Last month, he worked with this Congress to give scientists at the National Institutes of Health the strongest resources that they've had in over a decade. Well, so, so tonight I'm announcing a new national effort to get it done. And because he's gone to the mat for all of us on so many issues over the past 40 years, I'm putting Joe in charge of mission control. For the loved ones we've all lost, for the families that we can still save, let's make America the country that cures cancer once and for all. What do you think, Joe? Let's make it happen. Tell me a little bit about what, well, first of all, I'm sure everyone wants to know, uh, you know, did you meet Barack Obama? I'm sure you did many, many times, but, you know, <laughs> what's he like? <laughs> but then uh, more importantly, uh, what's it like uh, running such an important project in government? And um, tell me a bit about how it went. Yeah. So the piece you just played, which was announcing the cancer moonshot creation at the State of the Union in 2016, was a pivotal moment for me because as somebody who's a three-time cancer survivor to hear the president of the United States say to the world we are going to be the country that cures cancer was such a a powerful moment personally and i remember at the time i was chief of staff at 18f and i said oh i've got to get involved somehow and then you know work takes over like it does for all of us right you just kind of like oh i want to get involved and now i've got to go to work today and then a couple of weeks went by and they kicked off the event in the vice president's ceremonial office over in the Eisenhower Executive Office building, the EOB. And I was like, oh, I really got to get involved. And then a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call and it was uh, an invite to come over and join the Cancer Moonshot team and lead the UX efforts for it. Because one of the many things President Obama was brilliant at was, again, he's a dot connector and recognizing the need and the opportunity. What would it be like if we brought the outside in and brought technologists into the federal government? And so we started this program called the Presidential Innovation Fellows. And I was in the first class of that in 2012. And then I returned to government in 2015 at the White House's request to come finish out the administration. And so I was at 18F having a great time working with some of the smartest people I've ever worked with, with the biggest hearts and the most inclusive attitudes. And you get the phone call to come over and the answer is clearly yes. And <laughs> I got over there and they, you know, we had done a lot of introducing more human centered design aspects into government. And we stood on the, the, the shoulders of giants before us. We stood on the consumer financial protection board, CFPB that Elizabeth Warren started. We stood on the giants of um, GDS in the UK who did so much incredibly groundbreaking and foundational work for people like us to learn from. And so human centered design was starting to get into the parlance and the vocabulary of government. 
And, you know, we didn't come in with any new ideas. We didn't come in with anything that hadn't been thought of before. And what we did was we found our champions on the ground who had been doing this work for decades and who we could partner with. So just to kind of change the narrative that tech is going to save government, that's not the truth. Tech is coming in and partnering with either air cover or resources or time that the civil servants haven't had. So when I came in to lead the cancer moonshot efforts from a design perspective, I met with the National Institutes of Health, National Cancer Institutes, and said, you know, what are your ideas? What's what's going on that, that you would love to do? And we quickly identified that trials.cancer.gov was a huge one. So there was five aspects for how we were going to, you know, originally it was cure cancer. And we realized we have 11 months because the administration is ending on January 20th of 2017. We didn't know if we were going to have a friendly coming into office or a hostile coming into the office. And we all know what the outcome of that election was. And so we wanted to build it out in a way that would be durable no matter who won. So we spread the cancer moonshot plan out over five or seven agencies. But, you know, it was really finding the people on the ground to partner with. And and we decided that first we have to change the, the goal. So instead of curing cancer, it was how can we make 10 years of advances in the next five And that was the work we did for 11 months planning it out. And specifically for me, I did a lot of focus on cancer clinical trials because only four to 6% of adults who get cancer get into clinical trials. And we had to make that easier so we can get to a higher rate so we can get to cures faster. And so I took on two distinct bodies of work. One was trials.cancer.gov, which we did a major redesign on, blew all our numbers out of the water and was wildly successful. And that was a lot of usability a lot of working with the UX folks on the ground at the National Cancer Institute, who, again, had wanted to do this for years, but couldn't get the resources, couldn't get the budget. And we come in with the air cover from the White House and the vice president and the president. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, that moves things along a lot more quickly. And so that was a huge thing. We also did a two-month discovery sprint. We were around the country talking to doctors, patients, caregivers, sidekicks, family members, technology companies, advocacy groups, because we wanted to find out if we get, if we want to move the needle on the four to 6% of people who can get into clinical trials or consider them, what is the most opportune time to get them to consider a clinical trial? And it's the oh shit moment is what we found from the two Mm. months of work. It's the moment you find out you can get cancer, but the blockers to that are doctors only have 15 minutes to prep to see a patient and 15 minutes to see a patient. And so we came up with all these alternatives to like how to make those 15 minutes as impactful as possible. And then the third body of work that I drove for the moonshot was connecting the moonshot to the people. So we have a lot of people in government with PhDs and kicking cancer's ass, but how do you get everyday people in rural America and urban America who want to be involved because they were touched by cancer, they care about it and get their, their voices in the conversation. So We set up a medium publication where I would invite people to tell their stories. And then we use the power of the White House to amplify those stories. And so that was one of the many ways from the digital perspective, we connected the moonshot to the people. We had a summit where we convened people in D.C. and we had viewing parties in all 50 states in Guam and Puerto Rico. And it was just so special to be, one, such a part of an important movement, but then two, to be able to bring my U.S. skills to bear at the table in a way that would move it forward in a positive and inclusive way. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are probably it's a it's a huge minority of us designers that get to say that we've been able to be in a position with uh, the scale and the buy-in and all of that stuff that you need to make a project like that 
go. You know, you, you mentioned GDS and just kind of one of those perfect storms that the impetus happened at the right time and there were the right set of people in a room to just push something forward that turned into, um, as you say, kind of groundbreaking work. It must have been an incredible experience. I will forever be grateful that it was the highest honour of my life to do that work. This episode is kindly sponsored by the Deliveroo Experience Team. I can say, as someone who spent two and a half years working there, that Deliveroo is an amazing place to come and be a designer, a researcher, or a UX writer. You'll get to break out of not just the screen, working on real-life problems around getting food from kitchen to table, but out of London, going out to solve problems for customers, riders, and restaurants in 14 countries around the world. There's a bunch of open roles as we speak with everything from senior managers to product designers, UX writers and researcher roles up for grabs. They're looking for applicants from diverse backgrounds. And if you're not sure if you qualify, you should definitely apply anyway. The job descriptions are not a checklist. All you need to do is head to delivery.design to check out what the team are up to and what your next job could look like. That link is also in the show notes. Thanks. Before or since that, uh, you've uh, been... Uh, you've written a few articles, but there was one that I found, uh, which was um, how to feed humans, care and feed humans. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and there's the the, uh, the the leaders the leaders guide to the care and feeding of humans. That's the one. Uh, I'll link to it in the show notes so everyone can can click into that. But it caught me because. Um, I mean, it's, you'll be able to summarize it better than me, but broadly there are, there are four, there's a, a four bullet points that you, you outline as part of this article around how to care and feed, uh, feed humans. <laughs> uh, and they're interesting in that they're slightly counterintuitive maybe to, to many, um, in terms of, you're talking about leadership and leading from within and then and and uh, being able to i suppose move people in a direction and and uh, empower them and make and help them do great work by uh by almost taking a step back uh, or what might be seen as you know uh be the servant leadership model you know taken written about and um summarized in a way that's that's really interesting so you've got uh empower the team rally around the cause be humble and give away the glory and i just wondered if the, uh it'd be great to hear from you um you know what what led you to to writing about this stuff um have you learned anything since uh are there some kind of examples from your career and life that you could talk talk to this yeah you know it's interesting so i was invited to speak in australia on product management, product leadership, specifically around the Cancer Moonshot, but just more in general, because I've worked at the White House, I've worked on the World Cup, I've worked on the Super Bowl, kind of like all these things that, and I've worked on the Oscars. And so if you think of all those industries, they're kind of the pinnacle of that industry. That is the highest you can get. And I have been fortunate through my career. And I used to say I was lucky, but I stopped saying that because someone pulled me aside and said, you know, Kara, every time you say you're lucky, you're telling people that either listen to you, look up to you, talk to you, that no matter how hard they work, they will never achieve what you achieved. And that just stopped me in my tracks, Johnny. So I've, I've Mm. stopped saying lucky because I I do recognize it was a lot of hard work. Now it also was, I was in the right place at the right time. And I said, yes, or I asked, right. The world cup was because I 
knew it was coming to New Jersey. I knew it was coming to the States in 99. And I went to the volunteer form. The White House is because I responded to a tweet. The Oscars is because I was volunteering as a host committee member on the Super Bowl. It was coming to the town I was living in. And I just worked really hard on it. You know, I, I take pride in work. I'm a, a kid from just Jersey who that's the work ethic you're raised with. And the day before the Super Bowl, we were at the final dress rehearsal and the production team that had come down from L.A. said, we really like your how. If you're ever in L.A., we'd love to work with you again. And I said, I'm actually moving to L.A. in three weeks because I don't want to be 30 and not have tried entertainment. And they gave me the phone. I interviewed on the spot with this woman called Tanya. And at the end of the interview, she said, you have the job. I hung up the phone, gave it back to Margaret. I said, she said, I have the job. I don't know what your next job is. What is it? She said, the Oscars. And so... It is hard work. It is saying yes. You know, one of my mantras is always say yes when an opportunity comes up. Clearly, I'm not going to do brain surgery, but if it's something <laughs> I think I can swing, I'll do it. You know, so it's it's a mix of saying yes when opportunities come up. It's a mix of hard work. At this point, I've completely forgotten the original question you had asked, <laughs> <laughs> which was what again? How do you lead uh, by lifting other people up and... and um... If you could summarize your kind of methodology there. Yeah. How did I get to this place where I have four things that I felt bold enough to put in an article for other people to read? Absolutely. So what happened was, yeah, what happened was I got asked to come to Australia and they said, you can talk about whatever you want. And I thought, oh gosh, I said, well, what's the biggest challenge your audience is going to face, right? Because I always like to find out, one, I want my talks to be actionable. Two, I want to make sure the audience is getting what they need and not what I just randomly think they need. And she said, you know what, we're really challenged in our community down here on not having a seat at the table. So how do you influence when you don't have authority? And I was like, oh, I've got that in spades. I said, like, it's rare. I've actually had a team because as a UXer, as an instructional designer, you often are leading cross-functional teams to a aligned outcome, but they don't report to you. They don't, you know, they don't have to listen to you and they don't, you know, on, on the boxes on an org charge sense they they don't report to you right and so i was sitting down at dinner in dc with a friend called elaine and i said oh, i've been asked to give this talk and i i just don't know how i lead and she's like are they like um are you kidding me like this is what you do and so i i literally turned the receipt over and i was like okay first you know I guess the first thing I do is I really believe in empowering the team. Like if they've signed up to do something, you've got to believe they're going to do it. And okay, how do I get them there? All right, then what do I do? Okay, I'm always big on having a vision and a mission and objectives and everything ladders up to that. So like I rally them around the cause, the cause. And then, all right, so now we're rocking and rolling on the project or the deliverable or the, whatever it is. I was like, oh, well, we have to be humble. Like I definitely don't know everything. So I, I surround myself with people. I'm a big believer in having your work tribe and your personal tribe. Uh, my friend Cassie calls it your personal board of directors. <laughs> so who are the people you go to? And, and it's, it's like, it's like friendships in my point of view. Like you can't go to everybody for everything. One, you'll exhaust them. Two, you'll exhaust yourself. And so like, I might go to one person when I want to talk politics. I might go to another person if there's a religious debate or pop culture nonsense that, you know, like one of my little superhero side gigs is I'm like a pop culture, like savant. Um, but really knowing what you're not good at. So that be humble leg is really about know yourself well enough to know where your, your blind spots are. And then how are you helping, letting others help you fill them? And the last one's give away the glory. I'm huge on recognition. I'm huge on 
letting everybody know when people do a good job. Um, as for some people, they might not want to be recognized publicly. So it's like maybe a note or it's, you know, a gift basket or just something or just an email uh, or in these days, a Slack, a DM with a funny gift. Like I'm also a, a don't go to war with me in a gift battle because you will lose every time. People learn that quickly. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the giveaway, the glory is it's not just about the recognition, Johnny. It is about how are you extending your hand backward and helping the next person up, especially non-majority people, especially non-pale males. And and so I'm always either trying to, again, that goes back to the connecting people. It goes back to the lifting others up. And it's also about when an opportunity comes up, if I'm asked to do an interview, does it have to be me? Or can I have somebody on my team do it? When there's an opportunity to present to leadership, doesn't have to be me. How can I coach and prep the next person to do part of the presentation so they've got exposure to senior leadership? And so it's really about looking at the privilege and the opportunities you have and the the platform you have and how are you using your platform to recognize others? How are you using your privilege to help others come along? Because that way we all get better when there's more voices at the table, when there's diverse voices at the table. And so that's what I've spent a lot of my career is just, you know, really trying to help others come up the way I've been helped. And, you know, the other thing is origin stories are huge. And so many of the ones we tell in tech don't feature enough diversity in voices. So if I do see an origin story that I know is wrong, I will I will call it out and try to correct it because that is the only way it's going to happen. We shouldn't have the burden be on the people who it's happening to, to correct things. Cause there's already a lot of emotional labor we're asking people to do. So how can we use, you know, I, I often say my bucket has a lot of coins in it. I, I spend a lot of time building relationships. I, I love getting to know people and, and I love doing things for the only fact that it, it brings me joy and it helps somebody else. But filling that bucket with those coins also means that I can spend some of that and not take a hit to my yes. ego or my reputation and my brand where other people who might have to get up might take a hit. So I think that's another thing when you get into a, a, a certain level of leadership, whether it's in design or anything else is how are you spending your coins to help others? Yeah. I, um, this is a conversation that I've had with two or three people probably on this podcast about, I mean, what is probably commonly called sponsorship, uh, and you know, as, as opposed to mentorship where there's no kind of personal risk um, and sponsorship is dis, you know, best described as pulling, pulling someone up um, using mm-hmm. the position that you're in. Um, and as someone who, you know, I am a, I am a pale male for sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, I have had sponsors and they come from places that you don't always expect. And that feeling of, someone looking out for you and believing in you beyond any individual action that they might perform, you know, that they might get you the next job that you have, or they might get you in the, in the room or, or whatever it is. But that confidence that it gives you to, to know that there's someone that you can email who will always take the time or, or go out of their way to find the right person for you is, is just deeply powerful. So um, this concept of sponsorship is, is one that fascinates me and, um, but it's scary, I suppose, because for anyone, by its nature, you're putting your reputation at risk or your social capital or, you know, those, those coins in your in your bucket, you're spending them. So, yeah, it's something that we should all do more. Well, and I think one of the easiest things to do as an ally 
is when we're having these conversations, God forbid on Twitter, because design Twitter has been a hot mess of late, like extra. It's been really extra. Yeah. But even at conferences and on panels and in the speaking docket and in the publications, the easiest thing you can do as an ally is to look around. And if everybody in the conversation looks like you, then invite people who don't. Because as long as we keep swirling and having the people who look like us in the conversations, so tag somebody into a thread, ask somebody proactively for their opinion on something, invite them to speak on stage. Those are very easy. Yes, that feels like a real takeaway from this conversation. Um, I wanted to just, uh, I suppose, end on, well, two things. The first one, there was a particular sentence in that uh, blog post that, that, stuck out which was um, you saying that titles do matter and um, titles is a conversation that I end up having a lot with teams that I work with you know whenever anyone's trying to define a career ladder they're they're coming up with titles and um, working out what titles people should have and where how easily you should give them away and how much of a, a, a lever they are to hire the people you want and make people do the things you want and and things like that I just wondered if you have a, a your context for that was give, giving people the titles that will empower them to do the work that um, that needs to get done. So I'm just wondering if 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 you could expand on that and and talk a little bit to how you've seen titles impact positively and and the dangers as well. Yeah, you know, it's a two sided coin because the flippant part of me likes to you know do my Amy my Amy pose and say, you know, the power pose and say, ah, oh, titles don't matter. Don't focus on the title, focus on the work, the rest will come, which sounds so good, right? Because it means that you're focusing on the right things. In reality, the truth is they do matter in some cases, because in sometimes it means a seat at the table, literally in government, it's an easy way to delineate between who gets a seat at the table and who backbenches and backbenches in government means the row of chairs set around against the wall. And that's usually somebody who is like a deputy director or um, a special assistant to the person sitting at the table. But it just in government, a lot of times it matters. And it just it's a it's a calling card and an entree into a conversation. I've also Mm. worked at places where they don't matter. But where I've seen the matter most is when you have somebody who maybe came to a certain job from, let's say, a nonprofit or a place where they weren't at a certain level. And then they've just been mistitled. Right. So they're actually a senior UX researcher, but the place they came from maybe didn't understand laddering or didn't invest in it or didn't care for it, whatever the reason is. And so then we have an opportunity to level set and to give people the right title. So that's a couple examples. Another example is when you're doing something. So, like, I founded and ran TEDx into it, I executive produced that for six years. I had people who used their 10% time at Intuit to work on that with me. So I had 26 people I led. Again, influencing without authority, but had a really rad cause, a super clear vision, and a really fun event I wanted to put on with all of them. (laughs) And so what I did is I took that opportunity of influence. It was my show. It was my 10% time. I, you know, created a pitch deck and got a budget from our senior vice president to put it on. And I said, this is an opportunity where I can take somebody who is a writer in their day job. I'm going to have them run the communications track for this show. So because they're running a communications track and I'm putting four people under them on this show, on this event, I'm going to call them communications manager. That is something they can put on their resume. 
um, that is something meaningful and it, it helps them grow as they go up their career ladder. And in fact, in that particular use case for communications manager, she went on to be, uh, she left the company and her next gig is, oh, was director at Visa. And part of the reason she was able to, you know, contribute to getting that role or part of what contributed to getting that role was the fact that manager was on her, her thing. So there are times you can make titles up out of thin air and no one's going to push back. Like I had an, I had five tracks on that show. I had production. So I had a production manager. I had an experienced design manager. I had a communications manager, a talent relations manager, and then a logistics orchestrator, right? Which was another title I made up. But, you know, I, I remember somebody on Twitter reached out and said, how did you get, how do you convince, you know, management to put an experienced design manager on TEDx into it? And I said, it was my show. I created it. And they were like, whoa. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you just, even here now with my job at Intuit, I just got done leading a, a large team project over the past nine months. And, you know, in the discrete deliverables in that. So for like our town halls and all hands, I created a roles and responsibilities doc. And, you know, there was the executive producer, there was the production manager. So here's another person who in their day job, their title is X, but on that event that happens multiple times a year, they are the production manager. So I've been, you know, bringing them along and teaching them what I know about how to do production manager. And it's a skill set they're growing and they're really enjoying it. So it doesn't have to be a, a, a locked down official thing. Like you can, there are all kinds of opportunities to lead and to create leadership opportunities for others. And so it's putting in the work to give people those opportunities and help them flourish and grow. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, so I'm going to end on something a bit sillier. I know that you appeared on an episode of Glee. So that's, you know, that's a good uh, <laughs> claim to fame. If you, like, if you don't have enough already, there's a good claim to fame there. But I also wondered, as someone who has been in the West Wing, whether you're a West Wing fan. Of course. Okay, good, good. I was, I was worried for a second that you wouldn't be. I'm a big fan. I just wondered, uh, is there a character that you particularly uh, love? Oh, I, I, I'd have to go with CJ Craig. She started out doing press sec and then went to chief of staff. And, you know, Allison Janney is always a joy to watch no matter what she's doing. But to see a powerful woman in the most powerful building on earth and the way Sorkin wrote her and what she brought to the character, you know, I wanted to be CJ Craig when I grew up before I even knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was Josh, but, uh, <laughs> there you go. uh what an there amazing show. And, and, uh, thank you for talking to me today. It's been, uh, really interesting and a great insight into, uh, uh, I suppose, a world of design that I've never, never come close to experiencing. So, um, thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me, Johnny. This was a pleasure. You've managed to pack a lot into a short amount of time, but you are truly a pleasure. This was a great, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure.